We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Laura, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Mother Birth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. but great feedback and a growing listenership every day. If you've been listening to and loving the show, we could use your help. Sharing with friends and rating us in iTunes are the best ways that you can help the show to grow. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so that you can get all future episodes. If you're not sure how to subscribe to a podcast or how to do a review in iTunes, head over to our website at motherbirth.co where we'll be posting some short tutorials on how to do that. Today's guest is going to be sharing a beautiful story about her journey with infertility. Starting with a medical emergency in her early 20s that led to chemo before she could harvest her eggs, Jess knew that she would probably never carry her own child. Over the years, they've tried pretty much all of the options, and you won't want to miss the drama on their road to becoming a family. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today. Laura and I are here in the studio, and we've got a special guest down in San Francisco. Her name is Jess Goldman Fung, and did I say that right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, Jess, <laughs> Jess is going to share her story with us today. Um, she has a very unique journey into motherhood. Uh, I believe she refers to her experience as the infertility sampler platter. So that's <laughs> undoubtedly going to be interesting to hear. Um, Jess, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and you can just launch into your story. Well, I'll start, you know, when you're watching like a scary movie or something or a sad movie, you always want to know the happy ending. Um, so I'll start with the happy ending is that I'm uh, 35 years old and I have a four and a half year old daughter. So there's, you know, a wonderful ending here. Um, but when I was, I had just turned 21, I had just returned home from studying abroad and the whole time I kind of knew something was wrong and kind of my whole life I've never felt well. But I also had a mother with rheumatoid arthritis who pushed through a lot of pain and illness constantly to be this full-time, hands-on, totally engaged mother. Mm -hmm. And so she was always my role model. So even when I didn't feel well, I kind of did the same thing. And it wasn't until just days after my 21st birthday that as I was preparing to head back to Stanford for my winter quarter, my junior year, I actually ended up um, spending that winter quarter in the Stanford hospital instead. And it turned out that lupus was aggressively attacking my brain and my kidneys. And I was at that point fighting for my life. Um, and looking back, we now see that all the kind of chronic things I had been dealing with my whole life probably boils down to having lupus all along. But as anyone with an autoimmune disease knows, until you're kind of in a pretty significant flare up, it's almost impossible to diagnose these things. So the good news is I finally had a diagnosis. Bad news, my body was pretty much in peril. I was luckily in the best spot to be because when um, common drugs and treatments weren't working those first few days, they just kind of started throwing the medical kitchen sink at me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened in those first 10 days as different organs were shutting down because of this aggressive attack is I got handed this piece of paper in between seizures that I had to sign because I was newly 21. No one could sign for me. 
And basically what it said was um, you have to start aggressive chemotherapy. This may leave you unable to have children. Please sign here. And with my own mother's help, I signed on the dotted line. And so that is where my journey to motherhood really begins. Wow. What happened from there? I mean, you did you have chemotherapy for a period of time? Was that a one? What is yeah, so like? for a lot of women, what's really nice in the past decade, anyone going through chemotherapy, there's now this focus of what is life after chemotherapy. So it's like if you beat your disease or whatever you're dealing with, they're now actually focusing on hey, you lived, we want to be able to still give you that life um, afterwards. So a lot of women are able to preserve eggs. I was not in a position to do that because I was in such a critical state. So what they were able to do was, um, I think it was just more serendipitous than actual planning, but they did chemotherapy during my actual period for three months. And in some ways that may have preserved some of my fertility, which we'll get to later. Um, but other than that, I did apheresis. I was on dialysis. I was eventually discharged from the hospital about three to four months later. And I had survived, but my kidneys were in complete failure. So I was on the transplant list. Um, I was going back to school in between dialysis appointments. Um, but within a year, uh, I noticed I was going to the bathroom again and like, pretty large amounts. And all of a sudden tests came back that my kidneys had actually regained a percentage of function. And since then I've now lived almost a dozen years without a transplant. I never had a transplant. I got off of dialysis and I completely changed my lifestyle and um, diet around. And I've lived with the same stage four kidneys. So there, I'm still in, I've been in stage four kidney disease this whole time. Um, but I've lived with them for a dozen years now. I call them Frankenstein because they came back and I have made, um, my health, my career, because that's basically what it requires of me to continue to live and stay strong. And so I've now written two cookbooks and I somehow became a food writer, even though I can't eat most things because I'm on a low sodium diet and Kind of my whole approach to life is there's when you live with a chronic illness or just really anyone in life in general, you're constantly facing challenges and you can see those challenges as closed doors or you can see them as opportunities. And so at every juncture, that's kind of what I've done is I take whatever no I'm being given and I use that as a starting point to be creative. So with my lupus and my kidney disease, I basically turned it into a career. I'm like, well, if you're going to wreak havoc on my money, my body, I'm going to make money off of you. So, <laughs> and I want to say too, um, I'm no kidney expert, but just so that listeners know, regaining kidney function is not actually something that science would say is real. Yeah. So, um, this is no small feat for just to kind of go through and yeah. use her intuition and also her discipline to kind of keep her body functioning. And I, and I will need a transplant and probably several yes. over my lifetime and part of what they think happened. And they had hoped originally that my kidneys were just under duress and kind of a shut down out of shock to come back. And then they didn't come back, but eventually they did. So they think youth and health were on my side because I was already a very healthy 
person. I was active, um, which probably saved my life too. And so that's just become, you know, my mantra of everyday living is, um, constantly, uh, changing courses as needed to live a, a healthy life. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other components that you have to manage to, to maintain your health? One trigger for any chronic illness, which parenting has been real tricky with that one. Um, yeah. But uh, trying to reduce stress. So part of it is just constantly to steal a Silicon Valley term is constantly pivoting um, and, you know, trying to take every day at a time. And um, I believe you had Lisa Abramson on, but one of the tips I took from her is, you know, I'm such a to-do list, a type, type a person. And um, my lists were so long and becoming a mother. One of the things I had to do was really be okay of like functioning at 50% of my normal ability when it came to work and um, coming to terms with that. And so instead of having a to-do list of 20, I start every day with a to-do list of two. And then I feel quite accomplished, even if one of those things is like putting on pants. But really, you know, I think I like learning to be making something that's really accomplishable. But, you know, part of living with a disease and also being a mother is just like being kind to yourself. And I think that's a, you know, something we can constantly practice and learn. Yeah. So I think everyone will be wondering how you got from, you know, stage four kidney disease and not having a very optimistic chance of becoming pregnant in the future to now being a mother. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that. And I'm I'm really curious to know at that time, like, did you really grieve and feel like, were you upset by the fact that you may not be able to have children? Was that something that was really registering for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, I was 21. And at that point, as I think most people would agree with, my thoughts around pregnancy was to not get pregnant. <laughs> so yeah. and I remember that moment, you know, I was in the house, I was having nights where I was planning my own funeral. And I was also well, if I live, like, my thought was like, I'm going to adopt, like, this is what I meant to do. And so I actually didn't grieve. And then I went on a date. So I was dating someone then and I was actually dating through all of this, even with like a 12 inch um, dialysis tube and a bald head. And if anything, I think it gave me more confidence and um, direction in my life than I would have ever had at 21 before. Um, But on my first one thing I had learned in dating is that I never wanted to apologize for my disease or what my disease kind of required of me or what it might mean. So I learned pretty early on dating with lupus and kidney disease. I laid everything out on the table pretty quickly because I didn't want to be with anyone that couldn't handle it. And I didn't want, you know, it was already hard enough, um, to live with it, the last thing I wanted to do was like try to be someone I wasn't. I didn't have time or energy for that. So um, actually, lupus and kidney disease is great for your dating confidence. (laughs) On my very first date with my husband, we went to a museum and we were getting, um, I I didn't drink and there's like lots of things I couldn't eat. So you're like having sparkling water outside on a 
lawn and things were going great. And I just said, well, you should know that I probably, if you fall in love with me, I can't have your kids and kind of laid everything out on the table right there. And he actually went That's pretty bold. home that, I mean, I just really didn't want to date anyone that it was an issue for. And, um, he went home that night and he really thought about it. He researched everything he could on lupus and then called me for a second date. Now, of course, um, now women with lupus and kidney disease and a lot of other chronic conditions, they're making great strides when it comes to high risk pregnancies. And so Mm -hmm. the question had always been, um, will I be able to produce eggs because of the chemo? I had never thought about not being able to carry a child. And so I hadn't really gone there. I knew there was this one high-risk doctor that I would see. And once my husband proposed, I finally got an appointment. And I walked in and I met with the first, uh, I think it was a resident. And I feel terrible for this resident. And this is literally this man's job is to help women who have very high-risk pregnancies have babies. And the woman does my intake and she says, well, the good news is I really think we can make this happen and blah, 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 and walks out of the room. And I know from being in doctor's offices, when there's a huge break between the resident and the doctor coming in, things aren't good. And this doctor comes in and he is just sheet white. And he sits down and he said, now, I've been doing this for X many of years. And I've only had to say this to three women, but you cannot have a child. Because of my particular lupus in my brain, all the studies show is that death is guaranteed for either the mother and or the child. Mm -hmm. And the complications are just too high. And he was almost in tears. And all I could say was thank you because I knew walking into that office, no one was going to say you can have a totally normal pregnancy. I was either going to hear this will be very high risk or no. And I knew I would make the wrong choice if they had said high risk, meaning that I probably would have gone ahead with the pregnancy and put my life at risk because it would have been too hard not to. And so I was very thankful for a very clear, just cannot do this time to move on to option B. And, um, and I felt great in that moment. And then I had to open the door and there in the waiting room were what felt like a thousand pregnant bellies. And that's the first time that I felt the loss. The problem was, I'm surrounded by positive people who are very much like me and are always pushing ahead and like doing that positive reframing. So my husband just went into, okay, like, let's do this. Let's make some phone calls. Let's figure out more about surrogacy and let's meet with the next doctor. And I was like, I just want to be sad for like one moment. I've never really been sad about my disease. I've never been sad about the challenges. I've always just moved forward. I just want to grieve this loss that I don't get to do this. And it's one of the many things I don't get to do. Um, And so I think I cried for about 15 minutes and moved on. Um, But that's something, I think the hardest times for me is um, every time I go to a doctor's office and we'll talk about surrogacy and and pregnancy and birth, but I'm surrounded by yet seeing the thing I cannot ever do. Yeah. 
So that's, I think, the moments that are the hardest. And so I I don't care. I know that when I go to a baby shower or things like that, that I'm going to need just like a few moments to myself before and afterwards to just going back to what we said to be kind to our to ourselves and to be okay with the fact that like it's you need to grieve you need to smash a plate once in a while you need to pick some swear words to scream and then you get to pick yourself up by your bootstrap and and move forward yeah and and to acknowledge that grief isn't an event it's not like you grieve once for like 15 minutes and or you know two two weeks or two years or whatever it's it's something that you that you experience throughout your life and it is triggered by like you said those moments like going to a baby shower or you know being around someone that like a friend that you know is pregnant and and you have to allow yourself to to experience that and to allow that healing and that you know that mourning to happen in the stages that it does yeah and and you create your own not just I wouldn't even say boundaries because you don't want to be left out of those moments either, but you create your own coping mechanisms and knowing, like, I know I clear my schedule afterwards and I have, you know, a grandma or my husband take my daughter out so I can just be alone. And whether that means like crushing a Netflix show or stress eating tofu, like, you know, I do, I do me for a little while. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I'm so glad that you have the intuition to create that space for yourself because that is that's rare. I think most of us just kind of power through it. And we're like, well, you know that that was I've I've dealt with that. It's you know it's it's packaged up. It's on the shelf, and we're not going to go there. Yeah. So because it comes out in other ways. So <laughs> get yeah. God, give yourself space for sure. So the good, so yeah. okay. So just yeah, keep keep going. It sounds like you guys pursued surrogacy next? Yeah. So the good news is we had talked about the options and the part that I had forgotten when I was 21 and signing away and saying, yay, adoption was that there was another person involved in this choice, hopefully at some point, which was my part, my husband. And for him, you know, I always said as a couple, we never had to do that roller coaster of emotion of, oh my God, this is such a shock that this is going to be more difficult than expected because I had laid that out from the start. It was something I had known since I was 21 that he, we couldn't just have wine and get knocked up. Like this was going to be a process and it was going to take a long time. So we started early before we were even ready to be parents because we're like, this might take years. And I also knew for myself that I wanted to be more on the forward side of my friends having babies because I knew it would be hard to see a bunch of people had babies and there I was struggling to have babies. So I thought, let's start early. Um, And that might feel easier emotionally. So we didn't have to deal with a lot of the emotional ups and downs of just finding out that it was going to be difficult because we knew that part. But for my Mm -hmm. husband, he was I had already released what I kind of call like the mom ego of this attachment of having my own genetic child. Um, And I had released that at 21 subconsciously. So there was, you know, a baby was a baby to me. Being able to have family was just kind of a, a thing. And my genetics weren't that important to me, but for my husband, that was still, you know, he had in his mind, what it meant to be a father. And so it was very important to him to go down this surrogacy road first. Mm -hmm. And luckily I had one friend who was incredibly generous and open. And she's the only person I know who had gone through surrogacy. It actually never worked for her. And she eventually did 
adoption, but she shared everything she knew, which was basically she gave us the name of her agency. And all of this that we did, we just went by gut because there's just really not a lot of information. I mean, you basically have to know someone that's done it. Um, yeah, it's very experience-based. There's not like one place you can go to really research or get information. And and so Alejandro, my husband, called three places. And basically he was like, I picked this one because they sounded really nice on the phone. And I figured we're going to have to talk to them a lot. And I was like, okay. Um and basically, we picked an agency where all the people who worked there had been surrogates. So we felt like, okay, they understand from both sides. And that probably means they really take care of their surrogates well. And, you know, there's a lot of this emotional work you have to do with this idea that this other person is basically carrying your child. And, you know, how do you even pick that person? And they sent us a bunch of profiles and what's really interesting throughout everything we've had to do to try to have a family is we had to fill out like a 20 30 page profile about Mm -hmm. ourselves how we grew up our family how we see ourselves as parents why we want to be parents um all these questions if one of us dies like well how are we going to handle that and we tried to make everything fun so we set up dueling google us documents um got out the wine since I wasn't getting pregnant and we both filled it out at the same time and we wanted to see how close our answers were to each other and this is actually incredible opportunity to really talk through all this stuff about parenthood that you don't really talk about because your focus is so much on the bump in the baby room but we don't get to do that part so instead we're kind of forced in this position of really having to think for what happens when you have the baby and who are you as a couple now and what does that mean um and it's kind of amazing that no one else has to do this before they become parents but um you know from like the blood test to these documents and um, really having to think about this this choice of having a child. So we did that and we got, I think, two or three um, profiles of potential surrogates. And again, we just kind of said, we're going to go with our gut on all of this because there's really not a lot else. You know, there's not really any other tools out there to help you make these decisions. And we just kind of saw this woman and saw this couple and it felt like we were looking into a mirror and, um, we were pregnant within, uh, I think, four months of signing our contract. Um, and it almost felt like we had got actually got knocked up like unexpectedly because it was just so, so much faster than we had expected. And so basically what happens for those that don't know anything about surrogacy is once you sign with your surrogate, there's a lot of legal work that has to be put into place. Um, and I had to... so. The, I they did think I potentially could produce viable embryos. So I went through IVF. The first time I went through it, I made three viable embryos um, and the surrogate flew out for the transfer. But all three embryos died the morning of the transfer because they have to survive for three days. So that was our first try. And then we tried two months later, I went through IVF again, which is basically like a sped up version of pregnancy with intense hormones and injections and a lot of jazz. And then um, again, I made two viable embryos and one became our daughter. Wow. 
So I'm, I'm a little bit curious, you know, one of the things that we talk about on our show, and that's kind of the, um, one of the, the foundations of our mission is to kind of explore like the journey of motherhood, obviously, but kind of when women become mothers and sort of when they feel like they become mothers and, and that can just be so different for different people. It's not necessarily the moment you pee on the stick or the moment you, you know, push the baby out. And, and obviously in a story like yours, there are so many different pieces to it. So I'm, I'm curious where in this journey did you have that moment? That's, um, that's a great question. Um, so I actually got to pull my child out. So I was there. Actually, my entire 14 member family was there for the birth because our surrogate is the most amazing woman ever. And, um, and they're still a huge part of our life. And I can talk more about that too. Um, but I will say I wasn't prepared for a lot of postpartum issues. Um, especially because the whole process of the pregnancy was so beautiful. We really tried to make every moment special. Um, like my friends threw me an embryo shower when we were going through IVF and, um, I wore a pregnancy belly out shopping with my mom to go maternity shopping and, um, had multiple baby showers. And so every part of the journey of the pregnancy just like felt full of life and joy. And that's what we just focused on again, you know, taking closed doors and, um, finding that that creativity was the key to opening them back up. Um, but it was after the birth here I was, and I'm a pretty thin person with this newborn who I can't breastfeed. And, um, I don't look like I've been pregnant. And I also felt like if anyone said to me like, Oh my God, you look amazing. I always felt like I needed it to explain, why because it was unfair to other (laughs) women if I was just like oh thanks um I had so much guilt around this other woman doing this for me and um then having to hand over this child who yes was mine both legally and genetically but I can't even imagine what that must feel like and um so there was so much heavy heavy guilt around that. And then as many women I'm sure have shared and how you have yourself probably have felt, there is also this weight of responsibility of like keeping this child alive and making all the right choices and being the perfect mom. And if anything that felt multiplied, because I not only felt like I had to do that for this child and for myself and my family, but I also felt like I had to do it for this woman too. And like any mistake I made reflected on that. And, um, and I didn't feel like I was rightly her mother until around nine months. And, and I always say, um, my body was not made to have a baby, but damn, I was made to be a mother because I will say it unabashedly. I think I am an incredible mom. I think I have incredible instincts. Um, and I know I was made to do this. But it took a really long time to not feel just like deep guilt around it. I think that that is something I've heard from moms who maybe have, you know, any kind of like 
I don't know. It's like there's no word for it. It's not necessarily like alternative, but like whether you're adopting a child mm-hmm. or using surrogacy or even using a donor egg yeah. or, you know, I, there's all, as we all know, there's so many roads now to um, becoming a mother um, and having a baby. And I think that that one thing I have heard kind of overarching is what you're saying. Like, and you know, I think, you know, guilt can sa- sound really negative, you know, just because we, we make it a really negative thing. But I think it's kind of you explained too. It's almost a, a joint responsibility. Like yeah. you feel this like, okay. And, you know, and, and I think some people feel that about other parts of, you know, f- fertility things, whether that's the money, like it's, ex- and it's ex- expensive to do. So you feel this, like everything needs to go right. We've put so much into yeah. this and there's sacrificed so much of our family and, yeah. you know, time and energy and emotions. And so you feel that kind of, carried and I, you know I've taken care of moms who they feel that way until either the baby comes out and is healthy or like you said a couple years in and they have this like big moment where like we're just a family like we're yeah. just this you're my kid and we're your parents and mm-hmm. it, it all worked out it's almost like it, you have to kind of come out of that season of like this is this is really really intense yeah. and I'll say there's an anxiety a level of anxiety that comes for me at least but I I feel like this is probably pretty normal too I think a lot of us as new moms get this new level of anxiety, but for me, it was just ratcheted up too, because it, again, it was like this precious thing that was never supposed to happen. And, um, and, and then when I make really big decisions, whether it's around safety or schools, I literally, my brain goes to like, Oh, I can't do that to my surrogate. <laughs> like I have to make the right choice. Cause like huh. so many people, put so much on the line and time and energy into making this human being. And so like that level of responsibility and anxiety just feels so much bigger and higher. Wow. That, that sounds, that really sounds intense. Yeah. I mean, along the lines of what Laura was saying, whatever your journey to motherhood is like, whether it's super traditional or, you know, contains some of these different variables, like there's, there's just always something you're going to feel guilty about. And, you know, for you, like you didn't get to feel guilty about like all the ice cream you ate while you were pregnant or, you know, the, the wine, the, how much you drank the night you conceived, (laughs) um, you, you know, you have to worry about these other things like, like, you know, not, letting down your, you know, your daughter's surrogate mother. Like it's, it's just a, it's just a really complicated thing. Yeah. What was it like to be at her birth? What was it like to watch her be born? Um, you know, uh, we did all of like our birthing classes and we're really just kind of, and I, you know, we're really there to support her. And when it comes to surrogacy, my whole take a lot of people can do it in a way where they're really micromanaging the situation which makes complete sense and for me it was like I'm trusting this person and I want them to live their life and do this how they would do this um and so same with the birth I wanted her to just have the birth she wanted um and it was totally beautiful it was a little difficult afterwards because hospitals are really not set up for this and so I didn't have a room um, if I wanted to be with a baby, I had to be in the NICU with her. And so, um, we're actually hoping we just implanted for our third and final try with our surrogate again on Wednesday. And so I think moving forward, we've just learned a lot more having gone through it once and like 
learn much more about what we need during the birth, what we need postpartum, um, how to navigate those feelings of separation and guilt after the birth. Um, and that, you know, like, like you said, at this point, we're just a family. And so like, I think getting to that point will be faster and easier. Uh, we've also started the adoption process. We lost two babies over the last two years. So, um, you know, now my husband's also moved forward and is now, you know, he says, you know, he used to think fatherhood for him was very tied to being genetically like seeing his own genetic child, uh, grow up. But he is like, having been a father four and a half years now, I can say that has nothing to do with it. It's just getting to be, um, a guide to this little person and learning from them and learning with them. So he's totally open to it now, you know, how many years later after our first date and, um, and I, we, we use an egg donor for this round of embryos because I can't make, I can't go through IVF anymore. I was basically, my doctor, my team of doctors, which is about 10 doctors, was basically split 50-50. Um, half said that I could go through IVF again. Half said that I would end up with probably kidney failure or be very ill. And I think I made a much, I don't think I would have been able to make this decision five years ago but now as a parent I was really able to say you know what not worth it like who knows like making future choices for your body for your daughter so I really feel like I in that moment I was like wow I've really become a mother because (laughs) you know you're really thinking beyond yourself and making but also still thinking of yourself and I think that's important in motherhood is you you cannot cannot be a mother if you're not alive and so, um, and so I think I made a good choice there and that's why I call myself the infertility sample platter because I've pretty much gone down every road at this point and, uh, I'm happy I have, I'm grateful for it. Just like my kidneys ended up giving me this career I would have never had in food, um, having to go through all of these different routes of making a family has enabled me to help out a lot of other people. Cause like I said, you really, there's nothing out there. So I probably get an email or call to minimum a week, um, of people facing, uh, pregnancy challenges and needing some place to start. And so, um, perhaps this is my next career move once I get on the other side of growing our family. But um, I am thankful for it because I think I, um, you know, I may not be able to have a bump ever, uh, but I've gained a lot from these experiences in terms of being able to help other people out. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the first step in parenthood. Yeah. Are you using the same surrogate this time? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's been really special just because we've been able to spend so much more time with them too, going through all of this. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we call them our daughter's angels and, you know, they're, this is what I always, for me going through this, I knew I want these people to be part of our life if possible. And I feel the same way about adoption. Um, and I love listening to my daughter talk about her birth story and how she's, born and we've been open from it from the beginning and whenever she asks questions and 
Um, she was at the implantation and the way we've been describing it to her is that basically we're planting a seed. Um, and you know, sometimes she gardens with my husband every weekend. So I was like, you know, sometimes when we plant things, they just don't grow and sometimes they do. And so our, our last two seeds have not grown. And, and this morning she was playing with something under her dress. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, Oh, I planted a seed in my belly. (laughs) But no, she under, she totally gets it. She was grown in someone else's belly, but you know, I'm, I'm her mom. But again, it's like part of that, what I was saying of letting go of that mom ego. I love listening to her talk about it because we all want more people to love our child. And the more you can let, you know, it's, it's obviously a part of the process is releasing that need to be the only woman in your child's life and the only mother, but between all the babysitters and teachers and people in their life, you want more love in your child's life. And so I, I find it to be really beautiful the way both the surrogate talks about her and she talks about her surrogate. That's, that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny too, to hear you use the word seed because we've used that with our son who's almost eight now. And I mean, he has like a fairly, fairly good grasp on the physiological process of conception, but he has, you know, continued to use that word seed. And when I got pregnant with our newborn daughter just about a year ago he said to me one day he goes so dad gave you the seed huh (laughs) okay we're gonna need to talk again (laughs) you meet on this subject yeah (laughs) well my brother ended up being pregnant around the same time that we were supposed to have a, a baby which is around now and um and so I was so happy to have started this seed conversation because their seed took and ours didn't. And it was yeah. a little upsetting to her at first, but when I could explain it that way, she was mm-hmm. totally fine with it. And thank goodness for Sesame Street just happens to have this incredible three um, series, three shows all about adoption, which is like happened we just happened to turn it on randomly and it was the week before our home study and I was just like oh my god the sesame gods were just on our (laughs) side um so now she has this complete understanding so the other day she's mostly just frustrated that the baby hasn't shown up yet because she's been we've been trying for two years now and um and obviously with that comes a lot of amazing lessons of we don't always get what we want and just patience and all these things. And finally, the other day, as we were driving to school, she's like, mom, when am I getting this baby? And I was like, you know what? We're going to give it one more year. And, you know, we're really trying and we're going to try to plant the seed again. And if not, then we're really going to try to adopt. And she was like, fine, if I don't get a baby in a year, then I'd like an owl, a bunny, or a turtle. I was like, well, <laughs> at least she's got a plan moving forward. So, but it's yeah. fascinating to also, now that she's older, I'd always wanted my kids to be close together. And it also took some time to release that notion too. She'll be, yes. you know, five, six when a baby hopefully comes. And I'm actually so happy for it now because she's going through it with us and she's old enough cognitively and emotionally to do this with us and that we can be totally open with her. And I actually love seeing it through her eyes. In some ways it makes it so much easier um, because you have to just pare it down to basics and can't get too caught up in the emotions because you have to talk about it like seeds and yeah. 
you know, getting an owl in a year instead. So. And it's cool that it gets to be part of her story, too. Like, she's old enough that this will be, you know, whatever whatever the outcome is, she will remember this time, and she will this will be part of her story. And she'll relate it, of course, to as she gets older and understands more of, you know, how she came into the world and came to be part of your family. She'll yep. be able to, you know, kind of understand it all in this broader context. Got to watch, basically, how she was conceived. Mm-hmm. And my other favorite part is whenever she asks me how babies are made, all I have to say is at the doctor's office. So I don't actually have to get into it. <laughs> yeah, there is that for sure. I think that, too, was something that I always um, am thinking about with people who kind of go either with it through its infertility issues and then they end up being pregnant or, you know, doing any kind of surrogacy too, is just that you, you do kind of create a different approach to a baby. I mean, I think when you're, you know, you're trying, you're having sex and you're taking tests, it's a whole other different kind of struggle than, you know, these kind of planned large encounters is, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's like you guys do all of this planning, there's an attempt and then you kind of, you have a very open hand. And yeah. it's like not it's not that it's not devastating or sad or, you know, in so many ways it, it's back to the beginning, just like any kind of loss. But I think that, you know, listening to you talk about doing that with your daughter, I feel like, you know, we talk a lot on about this as an idea that it's like this is something we should be sharing with our community is mm-hmm. um, pr- pregnancy loss, you know. Yeah, and I and think yours is so different because you have these big like planned appointments and things that that are now you know there's these days and it's very like mathematical mm-hmm. and usually pregnancy loss is not mathematical feeling at all even though there's tons of math leading up to getting pregnant but I'm I'm very inspired about that in the sense of just like sharing that with your friends like you're saying your embryo parties and things like that I think a lot of people when they have any struggles their first inclination is to like kind of pull away and then it's just you and your partner on this like secret fertility infertility team like struggling alone. Yeah, that's my biggest advice to people is even the people that were there for me early on, they didn't share it with anyone. And, um, and I, and, you know, everyone obviously needs to do what they need to do to protect themselves and their emotions. And, and part of it is, it is true. You mean, like, I cannot tell you, I call it the stupid people's club because there's a special box in my brain and my heart for people who mean well and I love, but they, people say pretty stupid things to you. Um, you know, at least, like people are like, Oh, well you're not going to gain any weight. And it's like, I would gain 8,000 pounds to have a baby. Like that's not why I'm doing this. Or, you know, people who are like, Oh my God, you, you know, you know exactly what I'm going through because I'm having such a hard time getting pregnant. And they've, tried for like one month or you know what I mean so um, I call that the stupid people's club you just put them in the box and you forgive them and you move forward because we all say things sometimes that we don't mean but um I you know for me like it was really important to be open and even if we're only two weeks pregnant you know people would be like oh isn't it too early to tell people and it's like no because if I lose the baby at eight weeks or 12 weeks which we did um I want people to be there for me and I don't want to have, you know, so I, for me, I, I felt like I was going to treat it as if it was a normal pregnancy and that meant making my whole community involved and, um, and doing all the things I would have wanted to do as a pregnant person and just finding ways to do them. And I'm just thinking right now, you asked, when did I feel like a mom? And I, 
I will leave you with this anecdote of I was wearing my daughter and it was probably around the eight or like six, seven month mark. And it had been a long day and I had walked everywhere with her and I had groceries and I realized I could sit on the disabled pregnant woman's seat on the bus. Mm. And I had remembered thinking that I never got to do that when she was in utero and Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I get this special thing that I didn't get. But now I get it. And it was like this really weird, magical moment of getting to live for like one moment that that moment. Hmm. I love that. So you guys are pursuing surrogacy and adoption at the same time. So it's possible that you would end up with more than one baby within a a fairly small window, I, I assume. Well, yeah, originally we were going to do both at the same time. And then and then I was like, that is crazy because I'm also applying to kindergarten and I'm trying to stay alive and my husband's yeah. running a company. And I was like, OK, again, like, let's make some good adult parenting choices here. And um, and I know the way the universe works. So, yes, we would have ended up with like 30 kids after. Right. <laughs> and um, so. What we what we did is we got through all the paperwork and our home study approval. So basically, we are now ready to rock and roll when it comes with domestic adoption. Mm-hmm. But we're we're putting it on hold and just seeing if we get pregnant via surrogate. And if we don't or we lose another baby, then we'll just be like ready to go. And um, luckily, my husband's very confident. He's like, we're going to get matched like in four months. Like this is just happening. So. Um, we, we feel, you know, both of us are just really released to the process in the universe at this point. Um, we feel so fortunate to have one. We feel fortunate to have gone through this process. Like I said earlier, there's, you know, if surrogacy was complicated, egg donor and adoption is like a thousand times more complicated and Mm. Filling out, again, tons of these profiles and the home study is a whole other level of like looking deeply into your relationship and you as parents and why do you want another kid and what does that mean? And yeah, um, they're so intense and so intensely personal. But again, like, wow, what an incredible uh, process to go through as a couple Um And really have to ask yourself all these questions that no one has to ask themselves as they grow from one child to two children and really thinking about the dynamic and what does your childcare look like and how are you splitting duties as a husband and wife and all these things that no one forces you to sit down and and think about and write down on paper. Um, So that's kind of what is in the cards for us. We find out basically in seven days if we're pregnant and then we take it week by week. And I think once you've lost, once you've had a miscarriage, it becomes a lot harder to have that emotional investment. So I think we're just kind of in this place of, I wouldn't say none, but just roll in with it. Um, and there's some level of like self-protection that you develop just to, just to maintain your ability to move forward. Exactly. Yeah. And I think coming back to what you said about sharing with people, you know, you said uh, if we have a loss at eight, or, at eight weeks or 12 weeks, you know, we want people to be able to be there for us in our, you know, in our pain and in our grief. And I think I do think like you also said that, you know, everyone's different and some people react to to painful situations differently and, and protect their hearts in different ways. Um, but I do think that 
we so often do ourselves a disservice by thinking like, you know, I can't tell anyone that I'm pregnant or, you know, in, in the case of your story that, you know, that we're, that we have, you know, as a surrogate that is pregnant. Um, and we can't tell anyone until, you know, we're out of the first trimester or until, you know, we've had the 20 week ultrasound or, you know, whatever that marker is, that's going to make you feel safe. Maybe it's the, you know, getting past the date that you previously had a loss or whatever that is. I think it's, you know, we really, we definitely do a disservice to ourselves, but we also do a disservice to our community. We, we disable them from being able to be there for us and being able to learn from this experience. And I think that in our culture, especially, you know, in, in the U S and in the West, we we're so detached from the experiences of loss and of suffering. And so we, we continue to just, um, you know, reinforce the way that we deal with those situations by isolating ourselves and not talking about it and not giving our community the opportunity to be there for us. So, I think that's that's huge and and enables us to you know to to really go through those things in the in the fullness of that experience and then we get to model that for our kids and they get to see like you know what it's like to you know to handle loss and pain in life and and I think that's something very valuable to pass on. Yeah, resilience it's pretty much one of the greatest skills you can teach your kids. And so like we were saying earlier Part of me was a little nervous involving her, but again, I just go with my instincts and she is such a resilient kid. And the truth is she's got a mom who's sick and like life is going to be full of bumps. It already has, you know, I am, there are times when I just have to be in the hospital for a few days. And, um, I think it's all, it's our, the way, like you said, the way we approach all of these. And I think having her be a part of all of this is, um, she is a resilient kid. These things don't weigh on her. She has been able to go with the ebb and flow of it with us. And so even if that's what we come out of with this experience Mm -hmm. and no baby, but a kid who beautifully handled a tough couple of years with us, like that's awesome. Yeah. I think that that is, you know, it's a struggle for anyone, but I think, you know, specifically with your story that she gets to watch her mom be strong and like mm-hmm. move forward. And I think that there's a lot of value in that for her and all the children that you end up having. And yeah. All 30 that we're getting in the yeah. all 30 kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, having an eight, you know, an almost eight year old that has been, you know, alive th- with us through several losses and who has experienced those and and understands what has happened and has, you know, mourned those in his own way. I think that it has absolutely enriched who he is, like just his, the depth of his understanding of what life is and um, his ability to like, to empathize. And now, you know, he has a baby sister and I don't, you know, I I mean, you don't get to run the experiment twice. That's what I always say, but I don't, you know, I don't know what he would be like, with a baby sister, if he'd just gotten one easily. Um, mm-hmm. But he is so unbelievably sweet with her. And, and I can't help but think that he, he feels the preciousness of her life too, that he knows like this didn't come easily. And, you know, we, we had to fight as a family for this and we, you know, he, he senses that. And I think it really affects his relationship with her. So I, th- I think that's a really beautiful thing. And I think that your daughter, 
you know, is experiencing that and, and will experience that with, you know, whatever siblings come her way. And I also just wanted to say it's so nice to hear someone say that they're a good mom. Yeah. And <laughs> if yeah, you have such just, an incredibly powerful story, but the most powerful thing you might have said to me today was that you know that you're a good mom. Yeah. And I think that everyone needs to say that to themselves and to their friends. And, you know, I talk, I think about this and I remember, you know, my sister saying this about my mom, but like my mom talks about my sister and says that she is such a good mom. And that is from your mom. It's so powerful. And I, you know, I think that we should say that to our friends and tell them, like, I just want you to know, well, I think you're a really I, good mom. I had moment with my husband where like, he, he's an incredible dad, but like he would take her out for dinner or something. And like the waitress would be falling all over. Oh my God, you're such a great dad. Blah, blah, blah. And as you know, like any new mom is getting like criticized and advice and told like they're doing things wrong all the time from strangers. And I had this breakdown once where we were like on a vacation to Hawaii with some friends and our daughter was five months old and I was like trying to keep up a career and I was dealing with all this postpartum stuff and um, you know, even my husband was being kind of critical of me as a new parent that I was like too worried about stuff, but I hadn't really like understood my anxiety um, and his friends were being critical of me on this trip, even though I was the one being left alone to take care of the kids while they're out like canoeing and we're out at dinner one night and I, I have been with my daughter on this trip, like first time traveling, like so in over my head and stressed out, not a vacation at all. And my husband like literally puts his hand on the stroller and this waitress shows up with champagne for him and is like, Oh my God, you are such a great dad. And I lost it. Oh, man. <laughs> are you effing kidding me? Like you put your finger on a stroller and you get applauded. And it was like, here's the issue. Like we, we are damned if we do. And we're damned if we don't as new mothers and we're new mothers. Like we don't know what we're doing and we're trying to figure this out. And we're supposed to make all the right decisions, but none of the wrong ones. And if we do something too much, we're crazy. And if we don't do it enough, we're negligent. Yeah. Um, and I was like, your job moving forward is to tell every mother you see on a plane, on the street, in a cafe, I don't care. You tell them they're doing a great job. Yeah. And he now passes that on to like everyone he knows. He's like, stop a mom, like hashtag stop a mom and tell them mm -hmm. how great they are because we don't get it on this street. We get the, like, why isn't your kid wearing socks? Isn't your daughter cold? Like, no, she's fine. Like I've been, I know her. Do you know her? Cause I know her. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I think it was like in that moment too, where I, like I think it was around her first birthday and I just saw what an awesome person she was turning into. I was like, Oh my God, like I did that. Yeah. And I do know what I'm doing. And yeah, my body can't have a kid, but like I was definitely meant to have a kid. Yeah. I love that you use the word instincts. Like I have really good instincts. I think that's just such a good mm -hmm. word for motherhood because it covers everything. It covers, you know, like the, the, the deeper instincts of like, you know, how you, how you raise them and care for them and nourish them and love them. But also it covers like the, the reaction moments where you're like, you know, they're misbehaving or they're, you know, about to fall off the edge of the porch or whatever. And you like, you know, you just have these instinctual reactions. Yeah. And I think it's just, we tend to, like we're talking about, we tend to think that we don't have good instincts and that we're, you know, we're always one step behind and, you know, always like missing our kids cues and, and yeah. all of that. And I think it's just so great to reinforce, like I have really good instincts. 
And I'll share one more thing, um, especially because for people who aren't going to be able to have their own child genetically or carry them, I think a lot of people think that if they didn't carry the child, they won't have this connection. And it's actually part of the reason I didn't read any baby books because the part I would read was like the part for dads. And without fail, it was like, because you didn't carry the child, you won't have as close of a connection to the baby. And I was like, okay, no. And, um, you know, even like I had a family member make the comment because we were sending our surrogate tapes of us reading books and singing songs. Mm-hmm. We actually had all of our friends come over for a jam session and we recorded like five songs for um, our surrogate to play to our belly. Mm-hmm. And I remember a family member was like, what? Like, that doesn't even matter. Like, she won't know Je- Jessica's voice. She didn't live in Jessica. Mm-hmm. And and my mom was like, no, my own mother was like, no, like, you can have a powerful mental connection with something. And like, you better believe Jess is sending this baby every bit of energy from her body. And I actually never doubted that I would have a, a hormonal and emotional connection to my daughter and, um, and have those instincts still, mm-hmm. um, whether or not she's mine genetically or in me for nine months. And we are so, if anything, everyone, like she is me, (laughs) just a small version. And everyone jokes that it's Jess being raised by Jess. Like we are literally the same person. And, um, and how much of that is nature and nurture, who knows, but, um, you do not need to carry a child or be genetically linked to a child to have, that connection in any way and actually my breasts after she was born tried to breastfeed because of the hormones that just happened still even though I wasn't pregnant um my breasts became very engorged and um they told me I actually could potentially breastfeed if I took extra medicine but we decided against it but like my body had a full-on postpartum reaction yeah, still I was, I was about to say I love that you used the word postpartum earlier like you had a postpartum period as well and I think that it's very important to acknowledge that I think you know we have there's so much like shame and secrecy around postpartum the postpartum period and certainly around postpartum you know mental health issues yeah. um and people just don't talk about it people suffer through that all the time and that's you know regardless of you know, again, like being in a more traditional situation or not. But I think that like, it's got to be so hard for women who aren't in a traditional situation to feel like they can talk about it because, you know, it's, it's just so such a, such a different experience. And yet it is so the same. You are still at home with a baby. You are still like, you know, up at, at night with an infant and you are still like learning to fall in love with this new human and understand them. And like, you know, not like provide protect yeah it's it's and I don't think it I mean luckily I have Lisa Abramson who was on your podcast as a friend and I don't think it was actually until she talked about her own postpartum depression and psychosis that I realized oh my god I had postpartum depression and I didn't even realize it and um I didn't give birth but you better believe I had all those hormones coursing through my body and the anxiety and the lack of sleep and all this stuff that all women deal with and you know like a huge change of life and um it was definitely uh less serious in terms of this scale but like I definitely was in a a postpartum fog for like that good first nine months yeah 
Yeah, it's so good to hear you share that. I think that will be so important for our listeners to hear because there just are so many different variations and it's really good to hear you give voice to that. Well, thank you for the space to (laughs) give voice to it. Yeah. Anything else you want to share with us about your, your journey to motherhood? Oh my goodness. Still learning every day. I mean, I looked at her when she was born and I just said, Nomi, I am learning with you. And that's how I kind of try to approach every single day and phase and age and step is that I, she's new and I'm new. And I think the best pediatricians and midwives and um, doulas out there are the ones who just, um, constantly reinforce that for you, whether it's your first child or your third child, that it's new Mm -hmm. every time. And I think my husband and I have this new understanding going back to being gentle. You know, if we get lucky to have another kid, we're just going to be so much more gentle with ourselves when it comes to like figuring things out again and um, not thinking we need to have all the answers and, or do everything. And, you know, as any parent knows, it all constantly changes right when you have something figured out and um so whenever I kind of start feeling like I've lost touch as a parent I just remind myself that I'm learning with her Mm -hmm. like that's what I'm doing yeah that's great well thanks Jess for sharing your incredible story with us it was an honor to have you on the show We will post links to all of your different um, writing projects and cookbooks and all of that good stuff so our listeners can check that out on the show notes on the website. Okay, fabulous. Thank you guys so much. Of course. Thanks so much for sharing and being here. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook where we have all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Laura and Melissa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum.